Hello everybody and welcome. Welcome to the 31st episode of Geeking with Destination Venus. And as you can possibly hear, we have some irritating sleigh bells in the background because it is nearly Christmas. Don't worry, they're not going to be ringing all the way through the thing. I am flying solo once again this evening because I had a conversation with Hat about Doctor Who. And what I did, right, was I didn't record it. So, yeah. Not a chance to get everyone back together to have another conversation about it. So today you are going to get my personal spoiler full review of Doctor Who Flux. And, you know, we've got some sciencey stuff. We've got some comics recommendation stuff. We've got some spacey stuff. And we've got a plug. Because last week, at the end of last week, I sat down and recorded an episode of the Awesome Comics podcast with the Awesome Comics guys. And they got me on because they wanted to talk to a retailer about recommendations for comics for Christmas gifts. And do you know what? I'm not going to go into a big Christmas recommendation thing on here. I am going to point you at the awesome pod. Links in the show notes. Go and check that out. Listen to me ramble on. Uh, I am quite rude about leads at one point, so sorry, leads. But without further ado, we're going to sound the spoiler horn and then we're going to talk. About Doctor Who. Spoilers! Spoilers! And you know what? It's just struck me that the spoiler horn actually comes from Doctor Who. Thank you, River Song. Anyway, you have been warned. From this point onwards, if you haven't seen Doctor Who Flux, there are going to be a bunch of spoilers. If you haven't seen Doctor Who Flux and you want to see it, it is still available on the BBC iPlayer. I am not going to tell you whether I recommend it or not. Because, you know, that kind of spoils the point of there being a review, doesn't it? Okay, spoilers ahead. Everyone happy with that? You sure? You? You at the back? Yeah, you? Yeah? Happy with spoilers, yeah? Okay. Strap in, folks. I've got some very strong opinions. Doctor Who Flux. Here we go. Okay, so this was something of a departure for modern Doctor Who. Something similar to this was tried in Classic Who with Trial of a Time Lord, where, as with Flux, they dedicated an entire series of Doctor Who to one big overarching story. Now, Chris Chibnall will have known that because Chris Chibnall is a super fan of Doctor Who. And do you know what? In some ways, that makes this choice of approach for this series of Doctor Who an interesting one because, as a hardcore Whovian, Chris Chibnall will know that nobody likes Trial of a Time Lord. There are questions as to whether the issue with Trial of a Time Lord is the fact that it is the less well-regarded sixth Doctor, uh, or whether it's the writing, or whether it's just a bad idea to have an overarching story across an entire season of Doctor Who. But for me... That approach was not the problem. And I think what I am going to do is I'm going to start with all the things I didn't like about this series. That way, I get to end on a high with all the stuff I did. So, what didn't, didn't I like? Well, first of all, if you're going to do an overarching story arc for an entire series, for me, you want the thing to hang together. And there were some episodes in here that didn't feel like they properly fitted they felt kind of shoehorned in mary seacole i'm afraid i'm looking at you i i didn't really get the point of the sontarans in the crimea it would have worked just as well and in fact for me narratively it would have been better if we'd simply been dealing with a sontaran invasion of earth now at the time of the flux that to me would have made sense so i i genuinely not sure what they were trying to do there now that's a shame because I really loved the Mary Seacole episode. Uh, Seacole is a brilliant character from history. And uh, if, if I can find the link, I will drop a link to the Stuff You Missed in History Class episode about Mary Seacole. Because she's taught in schools now that the things that she did in Crimea are taught in schools now, I believe. But they were not when I was a kid. And so some of you out there may have been watching Doctor Who wondering who the heck Mary Seacole was. So if that was you, 
information in the show notes. Go and check it out. She was a remarkable woman, a genuinely remarkable woman. And that whole thing with the British hotel that she made out of stuff that she found, totally true. So, yeah, loved the episode, but I didn't think it worked within the show. And there's a couple of other things I didn't think worked within the show. I'm presuming that the character of the Grand Serpent is going to reappear in the specials, because if he doesn't, I don't understand what he was for. He did exactly nothing to contribute to the plot of Flux. Nothing at all. He was entirely superfluous, and it's a shame because he was a good villain. I really liked him as a villain, but there was no point to him. And you know what? Say what you like about Chris Chibnall as a writer. He's not a bad writer. And just to have a character floating around for no apparent reason is kind of bad writing. So there has to be a reason he's there. I'm just flummoxed as to what it actually is. So I'm hoping that he'll serve some useful purpose in one of the forthcoming Doctor Who specials that will round out the Chibnall Whitaker era. And another character that was entirely superfluous, and again, I can't believe I'm saying this, Kate Stewart. What exactly was Kate Stewart there to do? Because again, she basically didn't do anything. Every action that Kate Stewart took during that show either didn't need to happen because, you know, we didn't need to see her facing down the Grand Serpent because there was no reason for the Grand Serpent to be there, as far as I can tell. Or or it could just have been done by somebody else. So thrilled as I am to see Kate Stewart back. Why was she there? What was she doing? And finally, two more characters that didn't really need to be there. Vinda and Belle. And again, good characters, interesting characters with an interesting backstory played by really good actors. They were great portrayals, great performances of these characters. But why exactly were they there? What was the point of their little love story, their little search for each other? It didn't drive the plot. Nothing that either of them discovered couldn't have been done some other way. And it just, it felt a little shoehorned in. And I I don't like that. I wonder what the point of that was. Again, I don't like to be critical like this because I, I liked the performances. I liked the characters. I just didn't see what they were doing. They didn't seem narratively important. And that matters because that leads me directly to what I think was my biggest problem with the series as a whole, which honestly I can sum up in one word. Pacing. Everything, literally everything that happened felt kind of rushed. Now, I get why I do. I understand this thing was filmed during COVID. So everything had to be distanced and everything took a lot more time. Things needed to be more carefully done. Understood. I read somewhere that the series was supposed to be longer, but because COVID precautions made everything more expensive, they had to cut the number of episodes in order to stay within budget. Again, understood. It's been an extraordinarily trying couple of years. I understand. Compromises have to be made. But, and this is a big but, I cannot lie, I think some of the wrong compromises were made. I can't help thinking that if we'd cut the Grand Serpent and Kate Stewart and Vinda and Belle, a couple of things would have happened. First of all, the plot and the narrative wouldn't have needed to change at all. And we would have had more time. Things could have been explained better. Things could have been shown in more detail. And I can't help thinking that if they'd done that, this would have been a much, much better season of Doctor Who than it actually was. Now, it may be 
that when I've seen all three specials, I will feel very differently about this because it will be clear that the Grand Serpent and Vinder and Bell and Kate Stewart and Unit were all building up to something amazing. But for right now, all I've got is what I've got. And I think Flux would have been better without those elements. But we shall see. We shall see. Those are the negatives, if you like, of Flux. And some of them genuinely a little bit nitpicky because, honestly, I loved it. I'm very uncritical when it comes to Doctor Who. Uh, there are very few episodes of Doctor Who that I don't like. I can probably list them on one hand, certainly for modern Who. Um, Kill the Moon, Knock Knock, Orphan 66 and Dirk Ablam are the only episodes that I actively dislike. There are others that I'm less enthused about, but overall, I'm easy for Who. I am nine whenever I watch Doctor Who. There's no critical reasoning until I think about it later. I'm the same with Star Wars and Star Trek, for the record. Anyway, things I liked about Who was pretty much everything else. Now, let's get the elephant in the room out of the way right away. Uh, are the Doctor and Yaz having a thing? Because I don't know that it's written that way. I do know that both Mandip Gill and Jodie Whittaker are playing it that way. And I kind of like it, actually. The relationship between Yaz and the Doctor has been one of the core things for me in uh, Jodie Whittaker's reign as the Doctor. I'm not, in the general way of things, a shipper. And indeed, I have actively disliked relationships that have been hinted at in the TARDIS before. Um, Ten and Rose, for a start. Oh, my word. Not a lot of time for Ten and Rose. But Thirteen and Yes? I don't know. It started early. Uh, the, the first time that Doctor meets Yaz's mum and she asks Ryan whether he's seeing Yaz and Ryan says no. And then she asks the Doctor if she's seeing Yaz and the Doctor says, no, I don't think so. Are we? And I, I, uh, I like that. I, I like the moments there have been between the Doctor and Yaz. Uh, there have been some incredibly tender moments between them. There have been some incredibly moving moments between them. And there have been some moments where Yaz has just got massively frustrated with the Doctor's unwillingness to open up in the way you see in relationships. So I like all that. And then we've got the opening of episode one of Flux, where they fall into the TARDIS and are saved because there's a slightly ruffled double mattress in the console room. Why is that there? Not sure. Um, perhaps they were anticipating needing to break their fall. But that's not really it. I mean, that I'm sure was fan service. Someone is writing fan fiction about that mattress as we speak, I have no doubt. But what I really liked was not the sort of heavy-handed hints like that. It was the way after Yaz had been away in the past of 1901 for so long, working her way back the long way around, she finally meets up with the Doctor again. And their reaction to each other was perfect, actually. And the way the Doctor and Yaz expressed how much they'd missed each other, as whatever, as friends, as lovers, whatever they are, there's a real relationship there, which is more authentic, I think, than any of the relationships I've ever seen in the TARDIS. I'd love to see it, and I'm going to be sorry when Whitaker leaves, and I'm going to be fascinated to see what they do with that relationship if Whitaker leaves and Gil doesn't. If Yaz stays in the TARDIS with whoever is the next Doctor, that relationship is going to have to develop and change. We saw a little bit of that explored with Clara moving from 11 to 12. I think Yaz's relationship with the Doctor, because it's so much more authentic than the relationship that Clara had with the Doctor, I think we might get 
a much better exploration of what it must be to travel with the Doctor and then have them change into a completely different person. So that's fascinating. And to be honest, that's not the only reason I hope Mandip Gill stays. I want Mandip Gill to stay as Yaz because I think she's fabulous as a character. Probably my favourite companion of Modern Who. And given that Modern Clue includes Amy Pond, that's a big thing for me to say. So yeah, I loved that relationship. And I'll tell you what else I loved, which I did not expect to. Dan. John Bishop can act. Did anyone know that? I didn't know that. He was really good. And you know what? I was cynical. There was a lot of chatter when um, Bradley Walsh left as Graham. And then it was almost immediately announced that Bishop was coming in as Dan because a lot of us had been quite looking forward to the Doctor and Yaz in the TARDIS. But there was also just that element of, oh, uh, we need another middle-aged white guy, do we? Okay. And that's not what Dan was there for at all. His character really worked, worked within the narrative in a way that so many of the other new characters didn't, and made a great companion for Yaz. When they're, you know, stuck in the past and uh, Indiana Jones in their way round all the ancient sites, he was a great foil for Yaz. And then there was that glorious bit where Dan says he's going to go and talk to the tunnel guy, one scouser to another. And Yaz says, Dan, are you from Sheffield? Because you never mentioned it. To which Dan replies, you're all right, Sheffield. Keep your cutlery on. And I loved that interplay, that recognition of the East-West city rivalries that happen between Yorkshire and the Northwest. It was It was just a nice little moment. And I wish we'd had more of those. And while we're on the subject of Liverpool, I think we have to talk about Joseph Williamson, otherwise known as Tunnel Guy. Now, I knew about Joseph Williamson. I knew he was a real historical figure because I read about him somewhere. I have no idea where. Might have been Bill Bryson's Notes from a Small Island, but I've lost my copy of that, so I can't check. I am going to be honest. When he first appeared in the early episodes, I had no idea what was going on or how he was going to fit. And I actually found him quite confusing. But I bore with it, and I'm glad I did, because using Joseph Williamson in that way and using the Liverpool tunnels in that way is an example of something that Doctor Who just does brilliantly, which is take actual, genuine, real-world weirdness and... Give it a science fiction explanation. The idea that Joseph Williamson was motivated to dig those apparently pointless tunnels through Liverpool was because he was linking up rifts in the time-space continuum. Perfect. Just perfect. Love it, love it, love it. And of course, just that alone justifies the character of Dan and Dan's love of his city of Liverpool, which I also loved. I I loved that we had a character who just pretended to be a museum guide because he liked telling people about his city. I feel similarly about various places in the world, and it's so good to know I'm not alone. So, loved that. Absolutely loved it. Um, But now I think we do have to address something that was both brilliant and ridiculous, and that are the villains. Not the Grand Serpent bloke, he doesn't really count. Um, the actual villains. Swarm and Azure. First of all, those are stupid villain names. I'm not sure I could have come up with anything better, but those names are stupid names. For vi- Swarm? Why was he called Swarm? How does that fit or make any sense? And Azure was called Azure because she was blue or something? Come on, do better. It's not quite as bad as unobtainium, but it's really knocking on that door. And stuff like that really annoys me because it always, always, always just takes me out of the thing. <sighs> Breathe. However, they were beautiful, beautiful character designs. I mean, the makeup, the prosthetics and the glitter and oh, they looked 
brilliant. And the costumes, they, they too were just fantastic. And a real example of how stunning your results can be, even if your, your, your thing is not all that complex. Did have an issue with some of the direction. If you're going to have a prosthetic mask that's supposed to look like a sort of skull face with a bone nose, don't shoot it from below so you can see the air holes for goodness sake. And yeah, there are a couple of of issues actually with the with the direction and the shooting of a lot of this show, this series. Uh, the Sontarans had a new look. I liked that too. But again, they kept being shot in a way that made it really obvious they were wearing a prosthetic face masky thing, which could have done better. But anyway, back to the villains, Swarm and Azia. As villains, they were great. Now, I've seen some people sort of saying their motivation didn't make any sense. What, 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 what were they trying to achieve? Just like destroy the universe for the sake of destroying the universe. That's ridiculous and silly. And yes, that's the point. They were just pure evil to the point that they genuinely didn't understand that they were evil like proper villains don't. There was a wonderful conversation towards the end. I think it might even have been in the final episode where Azia is talking to the doctor and she's like genuinely confused. It's like, well, why? Why is existing better than not existing? Why is life better than death? What are you so annoyed about? Why do you keep trying to stop us? Why do you think you're right? And it's the genuine confusion of somebody who is so removed from what we would consider the right path that they genuinely just can't comprehend what the problem we have with them is. And I like that in a villain. I genuinely... A sort of scenery-crunching scenery <laughs> villain is nowhere near as convincing as a villain who genuinely doesn't think what they're doing is wicked. They, you know, they, they understand they're hurting people. They just don't understand that it's wrong. They understand they're destroying things. They just don't understand that it's wrong. No one's ever a villain in their own head. Uh, I thought Swarm and Azure beautifully summed that up also have to say really fine performances from both actors but if we're talking about villains and costume design we need to have a little chat about passenger first of all yeah what so he's a roboty thing that has infinite amounts of space inside him okay um why why make it humanoid that uh, doesn't make any sense I, I, I would have found Passenger more intriguing if he it had been more, well, not TARDIS-like, but more inhuman. A box. Passenger could just have been a box. And if Passenger had been a box, a couple of things would have been achieved. First of all, they would have saved some money on that costume. But second of all, it is understood they wouldn't have saved that much money on his costume because... That was an airsoft mask. You can buy them on Wish. They're 20 quid. For goodness sake, I absolutely approve of Doctor Who just using stuff off the shelf to make the costumes. It's a low budget show as these things go. Brilliant. I've seen the Ark in space. The monster there was green bubble wrap and it was fine. But at least when they used the bubble wrap in the Ark of Space, they at least made it green so it didn't look like ordinary bubble wrap if you're gonna take a 20 quid airsoft helmet to use in a costume in a well-renowned science fiction drama do something to it modify it a little bit so it doesn't look like a 20 quid airsoft helmet because again every single time passenger came on the screen i was not thinking oh what's going to happen now in this complex narrative no i was thinking you get them on Wish. And uh, it just took me out of the thing. And I hate that. You can probably tell. So, yeah. But we shall dwell no more on the airsoft mask because there are other brilliant things about Flux I want to talk about. First of all, the Weeping Angels and Claire. Now, 
that was a, a stroke of genius that you have a psychic who recognizes the doctor even though they've not met before because she's seen the doctor in a vision and she meets the doctor actually before the thing that causes her to get involved in the doctor's life occurs because then we see her being sent back in time by the by a weeping angel and that use of the weeping angels i thought was clever not a massive fan of how they they changed what the angels are but they did use them well and giving the angels a bit more backstory i quite like and of course that angels episode that first episode where we focused on the angels gave us what has to be the best thing about the whole series professor jericho oh professor jericho how good were you i loved that character i'm so glad they made him part of the the fabric of the the series i'm very sad that they killed him at the end i thought that was unnecessary i liked him i could have done with more i would have liked him as a recurring character in future series but there you go not my not my call to make but he was so i liked that he was somebody who had ambitions to adventure but had never quite taken that step and in that in that first episode he appears in the angels mock him and say you know he's he's never done anything he's never gone anywhere and then he meets the doctor and the doctor makes almost no difference to his life at all but then he meets yaz and dan and they all get sent back in time to 1901 by the angels and then they indiana jones their way back and it was brilliant to see Dan and Jericho and Yaz doing the Indiana Jones thing, going into the tombs. It made Jericho Yaz's companion, just as Dan really is Yaz's companion, not the doctor's. And I like that Yaz got to be a bit doctory in this. And I also am very much looking forward to the inevitable series of big Finnish audio dramas following the adventures of Yaz, Dan and Jericho through early 20th century archaeological sites and stuff because oh my goodness those audio dramas are just waiting to be made and that's the kind of spin-off generation that i really like about in doctor who you get a lot of that and I, i'm really looking forward uh, i'm really hoping that liz miles uh, who writes a lot of big finish and is also one of the verities on the verity podcast if i'm talking about doctor who really should recommend the verity podcast to you links in the show notes i've recommended it before uh liz miles writes a lot for big finish i'm really hoping she does some stuff with jericho because i think she'd do it really well anyway loved that character and as i say i loved the series pretty much i think we could have done without division we didn't need it i presume it was there either because Chibnall feels the need to explain some of that timeless child stuff from the previous series, or it's going to be integral to the specials that are still to come, because we really didn't need any of that. And just as with the Grand Serpent and Unit and Kate Stewart, if we hadn't spent so much time pratting around with the division, we could perhaps have had more time to have more of the other stuff explained and the pacing could have been better so yeah overall i absolutely loved this season of doctor who as i've loved them all uh, i don't think i've disliked a series of doctor who since the 80s um when i was not a fan of colin baker's final series at all i am sad that we're coming to the end of the jodie whittaker era of Doctor Who, I think she has been the most doctory of doctors in many, many ways. Uh, very much like Capaldi, she really threw herself into the role at the beginning of lockdown, when you know kids had, been, had had come home from school one Tuesday night and then didn't see their their friends again for three months. It it was brilliant of her to you know make that little video that they put out about. You know, the doctor just saying, oh, no, don't worry, it's all fine. Um, I'm, I'm hiding. We're all hiding a little bit at the moment. It's fine. And that was great. And as far as I can tell, she did that off her own bat. 
And she could do it in lockdown because she has the costume at home. She's that level of into it, which I adore. She's brought a real slightly befuddled energy to the role. Uh, And honestly, I think she's one of my favourite doctors. I can't have a favourite doctor anymore. I have a kind of top three and they, they, they rotate depending on what day of the week it is pretty much, uh, or what I watched most recently regarding who my actual favourite is. But my top three Doctors, I think, are now Peter Davison, who is the Doctor of my heart and my first Doctor, Peter Capaldi, who is the Doctor I always wanted, and Jodie Whittaker, who is the Doctor I never knew I wanted, but turns out really did. If nothing else, it was amazing to have a Doctor on the TV who talks like I would if I talked like I was from where I'm from. I loved that. I All of that was great. I'm going to miss Yaz. I'm really going to miss Yaz. I think her dynamic was great. Really got my fingers crossed that Mandip Gill doesn't leave when Whittaker does. I have a horrible feeling that she might, but I hope, I really hope she doesn't. I don't think I'm going to miss Chibnall. And I'm sorry to say that because Chibnall has been behind two of my very, very favourite Doctor Who episodes of all time. Rosa and Dims of the Punjab are flawed, yes, but a real example of what Doctor Who can really do. Okay, it's important to remember Doctor Who was originally conceived actually as an educational show that this this mad professor character would take his granddaughter through history and kids would watch it on a Saturday night and accidentally learn stuff. Rosa served that purpose. Demons of the Punjab served that purpose. And Demons of the Punjab is even more important because it's a bit of British history, a bit of, a bit of British colonial history that we don't talk about here, really. And we should. Because the partition of India and Pakistan is something that we absolutely did. I'm not going to get into a rant on it now, but I was not taught about that in school. And I think I should have been. And Doctor Who can at least make a start in film. I mean, I am not suggesting that kids should learn all their history from Doctor Who. But Doctor Who can cover stuff from history, which might then inspire kids to go out and find out more about it. And I know, I know that happened with Rosa and Deems of the Punjab. It absolutely did. I know kids who went out and did it. So yeah, Chibnall, brilliant for that. Overall, oh, you just let too much go. Orphan 55 or 66 or whatever number it was, I can't even be bothered to look it up, should never have been screened. It wasn't finished. I didn't mind the preachiness of it. Doctor Who's been preachy since it started. But for goodness sake, if you're going to put something out on primetime television, Finish it first. That script felt like a first draft. It didn't feel finished. The effects didn't feel finished. It was like, oh, we need to do another episode, but we've run out of time to finish writing it. You had the thing where the old guy was kidnapped by the dregs and you could hear him on the radio and he was just kind of matter of fact. By the way, could you possibly kill me, please? Because the idea was he was being tortured so horribly that he would rather die but it didn't sound like he was none of the actors hearts felt like they were in it and at the end the doctor just abandons two people to pretty much certain death with a cheery wave that's not the doctor that's the least doctory thing to do so there was that some of the preachiness was a little heavy-handed even for doctor who i could have lived with that but Too many of the scripts were too weak. The writing needed to have been better. There are three specials still to come. I've seen the potential for greatness in Chibnall. I would like to see that potential realised. We shall see. I'm hoping to have an actual proper discussion with somebody about this whole season and the New Year special 
early in January. And I think I'm also planning to have a, a proper retrospective with as many geeks as I can fit in the studio or onto Zoom when Chibnall's run is finally over. But for now, I think I will bother your ears no more with my thoughts on Doctor Who. I thought season 13 was flawed, but I loved it. I thought the highs were very, very high, and the lows were not that low, really. The pacing was awful. I think I understand why. There were several things that happened during the the narrative that I think were fairly clearly because of COVID. And I, I think this season's always going to have that asterisk over it. You know, that filmed during lockdown thing. It could have been better. I think it would have been better were it not for the restrictions that COVID placed on everything. And I think ultimately, after the year, the couple of years now, we've all had, I really do think we kind of have to be forgiving of that. So I have talked for over half an hour about Doctor Who season 13 flux and not mentioned the talking dog. I'm not going to. I liked him, but let's leave it there, shall we? Okay, a fairly incomplete review, I think it's fair to say, but enough to say. I loved it. I love Doctor Who. I love Jodie Whittaker. And I'm really looking forward to New Year's Day and the New Year special. But now, time to move on away from science fiction towards some real space. And as is becoming traditional, very, very quick James Webb Space Telescope update. Everything's still fine. There you go. That's all you need to know. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Still scheduled for launch in just six days time. It's been 30 years in the making, folks. Really, really got all of my fingers crossed. But the real news in space this week is of a successful NASA mission, something that has gone absolutely according to plan, which is pretty rare in space. And it's a genuine, genuine achievement because NASA has actually touched the sun. You may remember that a couple of weeks ago, NASA punched an asteroid and that was impressive enough. But this, this is, actually I was going to say it's beyond my wildest dreams. It isn't because there's a Thunderbirds movie from the 1960s, Thunderbirds Are Go, uh, where they do something similar only with people. So come on, NASA, step it up a little bit. But in all seriousness, they have flown a probe through the sun's corona, the upper atmosphere of the sun, and taken samples of the particles and magnetic fields there. Now, the Parker Solar Probe has been around for a long time. It was launched years ago. Still operational, even now, actually, having flown through the corona of the sun, still operational. Um, it, it's giving us much deeper insights into the evolution of the sun, uh, its impact on the solar system. Uh, and of course, the sun is the nearest star to us. It may not be like all stars, but by learning about the sun, we can learn about these stars in the rest of the universe, at least something. Um, now, Parker has circled closer and closer to the solar surface. Uh, and it, obviously, just by being closer, it can see things that other spacecraft that we've sent in that vague direction haven't been able to see because they were too far away. They couldn't resolve it. Uh, it's actually looked at the particles of the solar wind as they leave the sun. Now, the solar wind is really important. It's what gives us the aurora borealis. It's also what, if we get a massive flare-up from the sun that happens to come in this direction, something that could shut down all the electronics in Earth. I'll say that again. Could shut down all of the electronics on Earth. It's happened before, uh, it, but it was in the 19th century and there wasn't that much to shut down. Completely fritz the telegraph system. Happened again, and it will happen at some point. 
could be bad. So learning about it, learning about how to predict it, learning about how to react to it, all very important. Now, one of the things that Parker's discovered is that there are sort of zigzaggy magnetic structures in the solar wind, uh, which NASA, I think, calls switchbacks. And there's a lot of these close to the sun, but we don't know how they form or quite where in the sun's atmosphere they form. Or at least we didn't until this most recent entry into the corona. Parker has actually observed these things originating on the solar surface. So that's something we now know that we didn't know. Who knows how much more there is still to be learned. This isn't abstract knowledge, okay? Because of the Parker flyby, we now know that the sun is not, as had previously been thought by a lot of people, it's not a sort of smooth surface. Uh, it's not a surface at all, really. It's not solid, but there is a, you know, an outside bit of the sun and it's not smooth. It's got spikes and valleys. The, the, the surface is undulating. Now, if we can figure out whether these protrusions line up with solar activity coming from the surface, then we can really start to understand how events on the sun affect the solar wind and the solar atmosphere. And that could help us understand more about the solar wind and how we can predict what's going to happen with it. So, even if it wasn't just unutterably fascinating, it's also kind of useful. Uh, there are going to be some more flybys. Um, there's going to be another one in January 2022, uh, which will probably bring the Solar Pro back through the corona again. And uh, as I say, who knows what we'll find then? Maybe more about these switchback formations. It's going to be so worth keeping an eye on it. And of course, by January 2022, we'll start to have a bit of a handle on whether the James Webb Space Telescope is going to work as well, which is also kind of exciting. So, space, the final frontier. So many exciting things happening. It's going to be an extraordinary 2022. Meanwhile, over in comics, we have had the penultimate comics delivery of the year. And as ever, I have got some recommendations for you. Not as many as usual, because as often happens, as we get closer to the end of the year, the volume of comics seems to shrink and the deliveries get smaller, which is nice because it means I can focus in much more detail on the things that are new and i want to start with an early christmas present i've been given by dc comics and i'm going to lean back from the mic a little bit because otherwise i'm likely to blow your eardrums out by how excited i am with this because we've got a series called batgirls and it features three of the best characters in the entire dc universe and as you may be able to tell, I'm quite pleased about it. I've spoken of my love for all things Bat-Universe before. I'm pretty sure I've spoken of my love of the Bat-Girls before. And it's so nice. Just as Marvel have with Kate Bishop and Clint Barton or Mars Morales and Peter Parker. They've recognised that you can have two completely separate characters with the same codename. DC have finally come around to this, and we have several Robins who are calling themselves Robin, and we have several Batgirls who are calling themselves Batgirl, and they're all part of a, a thing, a heritage. They know each other, they're friends. It works. It absolutely works. Um, the Batgirls in question here are Cassandra Kane, formerly known as Orphan, who took up the mantle of Batgirl when Bruce Wayne was out of the city of Gotham when Gotham was destroyed by an earthquake. And uh, Barbara Gordon couldn't be Batgirl because she was still a wheelchair user at the time. <coughs> Love Cass. She's the ultimate fighter. She was raised to be an assassin and for a long time was mute. She, she didn't speak at all. And I kind of liked her 
uh, as that. Um, I like her more now that she talks because she's got some attitude. Stephanie Brown. Uh, Stephanie, formerly known as Spoiler Brown, who took up the mantle of Batgirl under the guidance of Barbara Gordon. Uh, again, while Barbara was still uh, using a chair. Uh, and she was also briefly a Robin. Of course, very famously for a long time, she was Tim Drake's girlfriend. And those two are going to need to have a bit of a talk, I think. To the revelations about Tim's sexuality over in Batman Urban Legends. And then there is Barbara Gordon, who is not donning the cape and ears for this. She is overseeing the two younger girls. Can I call them girls? They call themselves girls. I think I probably can. Once again, in her identity is Oracle, the master of all information. And it's great. It's just, just great. The story by Becky Cloonan is on point. I absolutely love these characters, and if they'd got them wrong, I would be furious. But it is working so beautifully. The the sibling-style relationship between Steph and Cass is perfect. It's just, it's just absolutely right. They bicker, but they back each other up. They've got each other's backs. They encourage each other's bad habits. They are a bad influence on each other. Uh, and... They're, ju- they're great. They're absolutely perfect. From the discussion about who gets to sleep in the top bunk in their new apartment, or uh, whether wearing a bag on her head to protect her identity was good enough when Cass went out and beat up some muggers. They're great. Their relationship is great, as is their relationship with Babs. Now, I always think of Babs as a teenager, and she's not now. She's still a young woman, but she's, she's mum in this relationship. And she comes across like that. There's a scene where Cass and Steph have been out until three in the morning and they come in through the window because, of course, they do. Then bats don't use doors. And Babs is sitting there waiting for them because she's waited up because she was worried about them. And honestly, anyone who's older than a teenager at this point has probably had that experience. I know I have, you know, sort of rolling in just before dawn when I was home for the holidays from university for the first time, to find my dad sitting in the kitchen waiting for me. That vibe, very, very much here. And the pacing of this book is brilliant. It doesn't hang around. You know, we're we're into a couple of kind of plots already. You know, so just, just 20 pages in, and we've got a serial killer, and we've got a sort of fo- an information foil as an enemy for Oracle. And we've got a gang of bikers and we've got zombie roadmenders. And it, oh, there is so much going on. It's it's brilliantly told. Becky Cloonan is a flipping genius. As is Michael Conrad. I, I keep crediting Cloonan with this. It's actually co-written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. Uh, art by George Corona. That's George with a J. Uh, with colours by uh, Becca Carey. And the art. Is also brilliant. The art and the colours. It's a great colour palette. It's occasionally vibrant, occasionally muted. Uh, they're printing on sort of almost like newspaper, newsprint paper, which I prefer to the glossy stuff. Uh, and the, the colouring works on that kind of matte surface. The art is really dynamic. Uh, it's not realistic. It's quite cartoony. It's quite rough in places. And I like that. There's a real chaos of line going on which reflects the personalities of the two younger Batgirls overall it is a glorious glorious package it's a work of absolute joy which is what a book featuring three of the best characters in the DC universe should be honestly with this and the Kate Bishop solo series landing in the, in a, within a week of each other we are being spoiled buy comics right now. If you don't buy any of the comics this week, go and take a look at Batgirls. It really is that good. And speaking of comics that really are that good, uh, another issue one that kind of jumped out at me this week uh, is Bookhead um, by Shobo, no other name given, uh, with art by George uh, Cambadias and letters by Jim Campbell. 
it's an interesting story of a town where something strange is going on. This town of Bookhead. A new kid arrives in the town and starts to notice things that other people aren't seeing. There's something going on with tattoos and he sees things that the people don't. And that's weird. And oh, there are so many vibes to this. It's a typical outsider in a small town story in many ways. But there's a little bit more depth to it here. For a start, our protagonist is Nigerian. And you don't see that in American comic books all that often. And the way he starts to uncover what appears to be a weird conspiracy is also kind of it's a slow burn but it's a convincing burn it really works uh, the pacing couldn't be more different than the pacing in Batgirls and it works for this narrative perfectly so add to that the fact that it looks amazing and you know it's a conspiracy to dive into I think and really appreciate so those are my two comics recommendations of the week. I am just going to throw in a quick honourable mention for Tis the Season to be Freezing from DC Comics. Uh, DC do something like this every year. It's becoming a bit of a, a, a sort of seasonal staple uh, where they just drop a, an anthology of short, festive, wintry stories. And as always. Quality is varied. There is a great um, Robin and Mr. Freeze story at the start uh, called Window Shopping uh, by Alan Burnett and Paul Dini. Uh, Paul Dini, who was pretty instrumental in creating Batman the Animated Series, it's, it's drawn very much in that uh, Batman the Animated Series style. Huge fun. If nothing else in this book was good, it would be worth the price of admission for that story alone, as it is. Lots of things in this book are good. It is expensive, and I hate it when DC do this. It's got a nice cardstock cover. It's not a nice sort of glossy cardstock cover. It's uh, about 100 pages, but it's £7.99, and I, I always think that's a bit much for a comic. It's not really graphic novel size. It's half graphic novel size. I suppose it's half as much as a graphic novel, but I don't know. It just feels dear. I would have preferred it. If the Christmas treat that DC wanted to give us was just a regular 80 page giant, wasn't square bound, just stapled like a regular comic, because then it would be cheaper and more people could afford it. And I would like that. I really am getting cross with the price of comics these days, but I shouldn't say that because I sell them for a living. So actually, they're all great value. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, two great comics and an honourable mention. Uh, I really do think that wherever you are, wherever you get your comics, take a look at Batgirls. If you like the Bat family, if you like that kind of sibling banter dynamic that they're already doing so well over in Robins and with um, Nightwing and stuff, check this out. It really, really is an utter, utter delight. Anyway, that's it for comics this week. And that's pretty much it. I don't really have any other geeky news for you. I'm sure there is some. I just haven't been aware of it. It's been a very busy week. I'm a retailer. It's the run up to Christmas. You know how it gets. Um, one thing I am just going to give a quick mention to, though, because I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed. And I'm, yeah, disappointed is probably the word. Some of you will have come across Kickstarter before. Uh, it's something that here in the world of comics, an awful lot of independent creators uh, even big names these days use to crowdfund their their next publication so they don't have to go through a publisher. You know, so you, you you go to Kickstarter and you pledge an amount towards a, a particular project and that gets you certain rewards. With comics Kickstarters, it usually starts with a copy of the comic and builds up to, you know, signed copy, uh, signed copy with a free print and, you know... A, extra rewards like that. It's a great system for comics. It, it's been one of the drivers behind the the boom over the last few years for self-publishing and independent comics because it's made it possible to get paid in advance, which means creators no longer have to save up three grand in order to get their first issue out. 
they can sell their first issue through Kickstarter effectively as a pre-order system. So they've got the money to make the comic, then they put the comic out, and boom. And then any revenue that hypothetically might come from the sale of issue one can go into the production of issue two, and suddenly you've got a business model and you're rolling. Fair to say, I've been a fan of Kickstarter for a long time, but now they've done something weird. They're getting into blockchain, which is something that I don't fully understand, but it's it's used a lot in cryptocurrency and NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which are a bit of a scourge. And certainly, as far as I can see, at least, mostly a bit of a scam. Um, and it's made a lot of the independent creators who had come to rely on Kickstarter. It's made them quite cross because blockchain burns ridiculous amounts of energy and is hugely wasteful. The carbon footprint is massive. And so a lot of creators are getting very cross about it. And honestly, if you are a tech entrepreneur, now's the time to set up a rival to Kickstarter, because I think you would find people moving to you in droves. I'm going to keep an eye on the situation, because if people don't feel able to use Kickstarter, that could have a massive impact on small press and independent comics in the UK uh, and elsewhere. I mean, Kickstarter is an international thing. And that would be a, a, a real problem, I think. So, uh, yeah, as a lover of comics, I will be keeping an eye on this. And uh, if anything happens, I will be sure to let you know. But that is just about it for this week. Uh, one thing on the Geek Community Notice Board. As you know, the Geek Bar is currently, let's say, on hiatus while they seek new premises. So it is no longer a bar for now. But a lot of the stuff that went on at the Geek Bar had nothing to do with it being a bar. It was a place to meet. It was a place to play games like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. Well, all of that continues. The secret lair is to be found in Hornbeam Park, where all of the Geek Bar regulars can still go and meet and play Dungeons and Dragons and all of that stuff. So check them out. Uh, links in the show notes if I can find them. Alan, if you're listening, can I have full details, please? Yes, it's out the town centre and all of that, but, you know, you can always get the train. It's it's two minutes and you're there. So that's happening. Please support that. They are brilliant, brilliant people. But that is about it for this week. All that remains is for me to tell you that, as ever, geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature of Venus Rising Media. Engineered by me. If you have any suggestions, complaints, comments, or anything else about the show, please do let me know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. If you want more details and links to things we've spoken about, www.destinationvenus.co.uk is where you will find the show notes. I should apologise that last week I just forgot to click publish and therefore did not publish any show notes last week. If you were wondering where they are, uh, they will be here by the time you hear this. Uh, so, in fact, what I will actually do, I think, is uh, just link, just just put last week's show notes in this week's show notes, if that makes sense, just to make everything easy to find. And finally, just before we go, there is only one more geeking with Destination Venus to come before Christmas. So I'm guessing you're all probably in that Christmas shopping frenzy that we all get into. Can I just, as ever, take a moment to encourage you to shop locally this Christmas? Every All the money you spend with local independent businesses goes to families, not corporations. So, you know, spread a little bit of Christmas cheer around your hometown this year. Also, don't want to bang on about it, but we are experiencing a ridiculous number of new variant coronavirus infections. Please Please wear your face covering to keep your distance and stay safe. If you can get a booster jab, get a booster jab. You know it makes sense. Okay, that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Until we do, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Until the next time we meet up here to go geeking once again. <laughs>